everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today you're in for a real treat. We've got five special podcasts coming at you all at once. The following audio was recorded by Discipleship.org at Exponential's World Conference in Orlando in March of 2022, where we gave five track sessions at the event. So in the next five episodes, you're going to be hearing from Bobby Harrington of Discipleship.org, Harry Brown from New Generations, Dan Lights with Bonhoeffer Project, Jim Putman from Real Life Ministries, and Paul Hugebar of Renew.org. I want to give you a heads up. Some of this audio has some weird skips here and there, but I'm going to go ahead and share these sessions with you because I believe they'll be helpful for both understanding international disciple-making movements and also for how these principles can apply in your ministry and in your church. All right, everybody, enough of me talking. Let's jump in and hear the episode. Harry Brown is going to talk about barriers to disciple-making movements in North America. And I just wanted to set the stage just a little bit. Disciple-making movements are really super exciting uh, for all of us who care about the mission of Jesus uh, and the vision of Revelation 7-9, where uh, God through John gives us a vision of people from every nation, language, and tribe worshiping Jesus in eternity. And so when you look around the world and you see these disciple-making movements that are this, again, it's a rapid disciple-making expansion of God's kingdom reaching more and more people so that a hundred churches are planted four generations deep in a very short period of time. And it's it's really phenomenal to see it. we pointed to the website 2414now.net, uh, which documents these movements around the world. When I interviewed Curtis Sargent, who is the guy behind that website, you know, he talked about 2 to 3% of the people of China, uh, 2 to 3%, uh, my numbers may be off a little bit, of the people of India are involved in these disciple-making movements. Literally, uh, Shidonke, uh, who we featured yesterday, talks about the total transformation of the, of the country of Sierra Leone with this disciple-making movement and in other places. So it's a very exciting thing. And in 30 years to ca- have captured over 1% of the world's population and it to be about disciple-making, for those who care about disciple-making, that's a really important conversation. Would you, uh, would you all not agree with that? And yet when we look at North America, there's barriers for some reason you don't see the uh, effectiveness of disciple-making movements like you see in other places around the world. So we asked Harry to come uh, with his experience with new generations and his experience with disciple-making movements and talk to us about the barriers he sees and then to have an honest conversation about that. So Harry, jump in and, and take over. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. Um, so the couple things I want to say at the beginning here, uh, first is when we look at barriers for North America, it doesn't mean that we don't have problems internationally. So if you were coming in to do an analysis of the work that's going on in other places, you'd find all kinds of problems. So it's not like that is sort of pristine and everything's going right and nothing's going right here. That's not the case. So that's not the message. And in that, everybody's on a journey. 
And we all want the same thing. We all want the kingdom of God to expand and to his glory to increase. So it's about figuring out how we're all going to get there in our, in our context. So that leads to another kind of introductory comment that there is no one size fits all. There, there's sort of an atmosphere out there. People probably would never say it, but there's an atmosphere that says, yeah, that is the way kind of thing. It's not true. Principles can be um, absolutely essential, but the expression of those things can be very, very different. So when you're looking at something, you don't want to say, okay, that's the model. And if I just take that model and I bring it over here and I put it in place here, it's going to work the same way because the diversity of the lost is almost infinite. So there has to be a conversation about what are the principles that make something work and how would I apply them here? So I used to say about that, it has to have a common essence but a custom expression. Now we've boiled it down to we just want to get a hold of what is fixed and what is flexible. The stuff that must be always present and always transferred and the stuff that's the creative genius that God is going to release in you because you understand the context you're working in and very few other people do. So, and I want to give you one, one last thing here that uh, I stole from somebody and I don't know who. So whoever you are, wherever you are, I want to give you credit if I ever know your name. But they said, God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. For all the stuff that we are doing, you are doing, that is honoring to God and is intending to fulfill his will, he says, yay and amen. But he's going to raise the bar and say, yeah, that was good for today. Here's where we're going tomorrow. So that's the nature of God, and that's the nature of the conversation. We need to celebrate the good stuff and an honest reflection say, hey, whatever God has got you doing and whatever it has done, yay and amen. Now, where do we go from here to get to the top of the mountain? It's what uh, we often refer to as where's highest and best. That's, that's the journey we're on, to go find highest and best. So yeah, we'll celebrate where we're at today, but we're going to press on for where God wants us to be tomorrow. So when we're going to talk about barriers that I've observed for happening in North America, it's because I'm a North American, and I live in a context called Nashville, which I share with Bobby. And what is or is not happening for the kingdom of God in that context is my concern. And it's uh, our concern as part of the body of Christ. And in our organization, which has 11 global regions by how we cut things up, uh, 2019, we had our international team meeting where all the key leaders from around the world get together, and one of the questions on the table was, where do you think God would have us go next? I thought they were going to say the Middle East. Unanimously, they said North America, because all of them from everywhere believe that God wants movements to happen here. So that was their unanimous voice, and so we put together a North American disciple-making movement branch which tries to help anybody who's on that journey to go farther and climb higher. So uh, that's part of what's on our heart. So one of the reasons I'm saying these things is this isn't an us and them thing. This is a we thing. What do we want to see happen here with wherever God has us today, but where we see he wants us to be tomorrow? So that's just set the stage. 
So when it comes to, to barriers, I've um, put four big problems on the table. Now, that's not to say that four is the whole limit of anything. It's just to say this is a way to start a conversation for the four that, that I see that we can fit in the time frame today. So the first one is that we have a paradigm problem. And the essence of this problem is that there's a prevailing attitude among believers that this idea of making disciples and teaching them to obey is not my job. And here, here's the honest truth. I was spiritually born with that genetic defect. So I came out of a Christian family, came, uh, raised my hand to accept Jesus at a camp, uh, was baptized after we got down off the mountain, and you know, went to church all my life, uh, wound up going to three Bible schools, all that kind of stuff. But the truth of it is, nobody in my spiritual journey ever put it deep into my soul that God wanted me to fulfill his command in my circle of influence. So I've had a chance to go a lot of places. I think the current count is something like 85 countries and many of them a dozen times. So I've had a fair exposure to other ministries and churches and so forth. And, and here's one of the things that for me in my experience has been true. If you sit down in the pew in any place, anywhere in anybody's church of any flavor, and you ask whoever is the ordinary person, not the staff, what is the primary purpose that God left you on this earth for after he saved you? And what I've never heard, not that it doesn't exist, but what I've never heard is to bring the kingdom of God into my circle of influence. That awareness, that identity, that core reason for being, that mission in life, is not what they reflect back. So I take away from that, we have a paradigm problem. Because if the reverse was true, and you sat down next to ordinary people anywhere and said, what do you think God wants you to do? What's God's will for your life? What's your reason for being? Why did he leave you here? Whatever the entry level question is. And they said back to you, I know God is going to use me to bring the kingdom of God into my circle of influence. And I'm excited about that. And he's showing me how to do it. And we're seeing progress in it, etc. And it's the culture inside of our church that we're all going to do it wherever we go. I'm not hearing that. I don't know if you're hearing that. Good morning, folks. Come on in. But that says to me that we have a paradigm problem. It's not the way we think, and the way we think is how we act. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you don't perceive that's your identity, that's your mission, that's your calling, well, you're not going to act accordingly. And that would be my story. I, I basically came out of a Christian culture that said, you're supposed to show up, you're supposed to look right, you're supposed to pay up, <clears throat> and you're supposed to make introductions. And those introductions mean we will take it from here because you're really not the one to carry it through. And that is a spiritual genetic defect, and it causes me to walk with a limp. I have another limp, I wreck my knee, but for illustration, it causes me to walk with a limp. So if it's not in our paradigm, it's not going to be in our values and in our culture. Now, values, doesn't matter what the polished statement above the door says. 
the values are, are what you invest in, what you measure, and what you celebrate. So when it comes to this idea of ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural networks, how much of an investment, how much measurement, how much celebration is going on? And those things reflect whether or not this is or is not part of our values. What a culture. Culture is what we all affirm, what we all reinforce, what we all protect, and what we transfer. And that could be anything. But when those things happen inside of a group that has um, the cohesion that's sufficient to create an identity, this is us. Those elements of culture become the bedrock. And those bedrock things provide our identity, provide our motivation. And if we stray, it's where we get course corrected to by the rest of the people. It doesn't have to be the leadership. You're coloring outside the lines on a cultural issue. <clears throat> the other people in that culture are going to be nurturing you back to where you need to be. You're going to hear about it. So this, this paradigm problem, it runs deep because it's sort of the invisible thing that guides the visible things. People don't stand up and say, it's my culture to do this or that. They do it because it's instinctive to them. It's who they are. And if it is not present, it takes an awful lot to make it change. And here's the biggest part of that paradigm problem. When the regular people, what the Americans would call Joe and Sally Smith, are not involved in the cause of the Great Commission, we cannot win. Full stop. We cannot win. And when I say win, 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, run to win. And so the people that hear that need to understand that in order to win, ordinary people have to be the center of the strategy. And right now, the general reality around the world is that those ordinary people, the essential part of the workforce to complete the Great Commission, are sitting on the sidelines. And here's the kicker. They're sitting on the sidelines guilt-free. They're not saying, oh, I know that Jesus wants me to be in the game, and I know I'm not doing it, and I feel so bad about it. They're not saying that. They're saying, y'all go. It's what we pay you to do. So all you folks who are on staff, get out there and make it happen. That's a paradigm problem. And until that paradigm problem is taken care of, then the essential workforce, ordinary people, to get involved in the battle, and the only ones who can actually win that battle, we have a situation that says we can't win. So <clears throat> one last thing here on a paradigm problem that is important for you to understand. The devil is all in against this. Now, obviously, the devil is all in against this all the time on everything. But think of it in these terms. If you were sitting on the war council for Satan, and he wanted all of his senior demons to come in and identify where the great threats were to his purposes. If you've ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, that's the kind of dynamic where you got the senior demon talking to the junior demon, trying to coach him how to do as much damage to the cause of the king as possible. <clears throat> that's the kind of mindset you have to have for this illustration. So let's say you're in that room 
And the questions came on the table, where can we do the most damage to the cause of Christ and the King? Guess what? It's not the next megachurch. It's not having a Christian president or politician or whatever else. All of that stuff does have an impact, but it's in isolation. You know what's going to cause the enemy of our souls to absolutely shake? Is the idea that ordinary people everywhere who follow Jesus are going to be multiplying disciple makers in their natural networks. Because that spells doom. So the enemy is working very hard to keep the paradigm from taking root inside of God's church. Because if it ever does, and people actually get out into their circles of influence and actually start making disciples who actually make disciples, his cause is lost. So we cannot win without ordinary people being the dominant workforce for the cause of the kingdom. And guess what? Turn that coin over. We can't lose without them. The formula for the Great Commission is two plus two equals four. They tell us that there's two billion Christians in the world right now. And if every disciple made one disciple in one year, that's it. Not make a hundred, not be a superstar. If everybody made one in one year, two would be four. And guess what happens next year? And in a world with a population of seven billion and something, that's a profound thought. Because the enemy knows that, he is all in against this paradigm becoming clear to his people where they actually get up and get moving to make it true. So paradigm problem is problem number one. Here's number two. We have a prayer problem. And some of you were in here when we talked prayer and fasting the other day. Some were not. So we're not going to go as deep as we did the other day. But we do have to say we have a prayer problem. And the first part of our prayer problem is we don't believe Jesus. Now, why do I say that? It's kind of a stark statement. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. If we did believe that, we would act differently. And I know we intellectually believe it. Do we act upon it? Is that the centerpiece of the strategy that says whatever we think about to make progress on these goals has to sit on the bedrock of ongoing and intense intercession, if we really believe that, would we act the way that we're doing? And my basic answer is no. I don't think that we have really captured that concept to where it burns in our soul that says, nothing I do today is going to have any effect unless God is in it. And the only way to get God in it is invite him to the process and make sure that we're aligning with his will. I kind of follow a milk stool theology. You got three legs. Is it God's will? Is it being done God's way? Is it God's timing? And you can't have a leg missing and you can't have one short if you intend to sit on or stand on that milk stool. God has to be in the center of that thing. And that's not spiritual rocket science, but it also is not the prevailing tone. If you ask people, what is your, your plan, your goal, and they tell you, and if you ask them how you're going to get there, it's not very often the first thing they say is, we're going to have the intercessors break through to the point where all of our strategies can be successful. That's at least not what I'm hearing back when I ask the question. So I perceive we have a prayer problem. Now, we said yesterday, if you happen to be here, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and powers 
and spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places and the weapons of the warfare that are going to get the job done are not of the flesh. So the battle is raging in the heavenlies, and that's where the real war is won. So if we're not focused on prayer to the point where we can break those strongholds to set the captives free, then we can't expect that our very slick strategies are going to work. And often I find that when we are praying, we're not praying strategically. Lord God, we want to reach our city. Well, that's not bad, but it's not the whole answer. And I shared yesterday a, a prayer framework, so I'm going to repeat it again for anybody that wasn't here. I encourage people as they're thinking about where are you targeting that the kingdom of God will take root and take off? Wherever that place is, are you praying into that with the kind of knowledge that comes from we engaged, we've asked, we've understood? Is the framework you're using four sides that you're praying that God will bind the strong man? Because Jesus said, oh, sorry, pray that the Father will draw people. Because Jesus said, if the Father is not drawing them, they're not coming. Are you praying that God would bind the strong man? Because Jesus said, you don't bind the strong man, you can't steal his stuff. Are you praying that God would break the strongholds that are restraining them from responding? And are you praying that God would open the minds that the enemy has blinded? Because if the mind is not open to spiritual things, it's foolishness, and people don't respond to it. That kind of um, intentionality in prayer of here's what has to happen in order to see all of our strategies be successful is what I'm advocating, and I'm not seeing it as much as I think we need to, so I think it's one of our primary problems in why things aren't happening in the North American context. So let me just give some illustrations here. I said yesterday that we, by God's grace and a lot of intentionality, have put together an intercession base that has over 100,000 dedicated intercessors. That doesn't mean the people in the, the church are praying. They are. I mean that there's 100,000 people who have given their life to this, that they have committed. They will be praying and fasting on regular, stringent um, regiments in order to see these things be true. Before the throne, night and day, there's a passage in Ezekiel, I think it is, that I should have looked up for you. And it says, the ones who give God no rest. <laughs> that kind of intensity, that kind of bulldogishness, that kind of we ain't letting go until we get what we want kind of attitude in prayer. So some illustrations. In, in our intercession base, whenever we have a partner or we have somebody that we're walking with or working with, we'd ask them, okay, what is it that you want God to do for you? And they would say whatever they say, and then we would form a small group intercession team for them, four, five, six, something like that. So a couple illustrations. In, in one case, it was a foundation that was giving us uh, a lot of money. And so I asked the, the people who were leaders on that, what is the thing that you want God to do for you? And one of the guys said, my son David is a heroin addict, and we've done everything we can do, and his life is just destroyed, and everything is falling apart. So I'm pleading before God for David. I said, okay, we'll set up an intercession team for David. They put that band together. They took David's picture, and occasionally we'd get updates on how David is doing. The bottom line, within a couple of years, David was set free from heroin. And he not only was clean and sober, he now 
was uh, in a business that he became part owner of, and he was giving his life to help people who were damaged in the same way that he was. And that was because people went to the throne with that kind of attitude of, I am not going to let go until I get what we need. Another illustration uh, was a company. It was a very large company in California. There was uh, three brothers that owned them. They're all my friends. We uh, had a meeting with our international crowd there at the facility one day and asked them, what is it that God, you want God to do for you? And they said, the business is it's, uh, down, spiraling downward, and it could crash, and we could all just have to fold up our tent and go home. <laughs> Shadake, the guy we've mentioned several times here, was part of this, and I couldn't find him. I'm looking around, where'd Shadake go? So I finally found him. He's outside, and he went to the driveway and got a handful of gravel and put it in a little bottle and took that home as his prayer reminder, set up an intercession group. And, and that company, in, in the next, uh, I think it was a year and a half or so, dramatically turned around to where those brothers sold that thing for 50 million bucks and began to take the proceeds and invest it in the cause of the kingdom. That's just intercession where people locked onto something and said, we're going to make something happen, and we're going to ask God to do it. I shouldn't say we're going to make something happen. We're going to pray to help God make something happen. So prayer problem. I think we need to reexamine where we're at and where we need to be in order to see the outcome that we desire. So what's our next problem? I think we have an obedience problem. The obedience problem is rooted in the birth certificate of our nation, which is called the Declaration of Independence. We have it in us. I have it in me. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I like independence. And when that carries over into my relationship with God, I realize in me that often it's kind of an atmosphere of negotiation where I'm sort of, you know, God, yeah, if you, and then I will, and we could, and whatever, and there's a little dance going on. I've, I've never lived under a monarch. If you live under a monarch, when the king speaks, you bow your knee and say, yes, I will do it. It's not a discussion. It's not a negotiation. It's the recognition of his role and who you are relative to that role that you are one who wants to obey the king in everything. This is born and bred of a fundamental problem. As I mentioned, I've been a lot of places in the world, and I see places where the gospel was exported from here to there. And most of what I've seen is people who claim the name of Christ who are byproducts of a gospel of salvation and not a gospel of the kingdom. And in a gospel of salvation, you get believers. And in a gospel of the kingdom, you get followers. And this is not just playing with words. There's a mindset difference here that says, if it's a gospel of salvation, I understood I'm a sinner and he's a savior. And I said, yes, and I will have eternity. That's 100% true. There's nothing not to like about it. But it's also not the whole story. A gospel of the kingdom says he is the king, and I will obey him in everything. What, what does it mean to say you need to die daily? You need to be a living sacrifice. Doesn't the scripture point us to the place that says it's not about me? 
It's about him. And what it does is it produces a reticence to obedience. Now, knowledge is important. You have to have it. If you don't know what to do, how do you act? Nobody's knocking knowledge. But knowledge that's disconnected from obedience makes Pharisees. It is steeped in religion and yet far from God. We all know all the interactions that Jesus had with the Pharisees and how basically he said all that stuff means nothing because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So this idea of believers versus followers is actually a fulcrum because if people um, are responding to a gospel of salvation, here's a universal truth. What you win them with is what you win them to. And if in fact, the only idea that was given to them is that you're a sinner, he's a savior, then basically you start talking obedience, you start talking about dying daily and being a living sacrifice, you get pushback because that's bait and switch. You did not put that in the equation when I said yes, and now you're trying to add in after the fact, and all this stuff about going out to engage with your neighbors and all this stuff about being willing to sacrifice and stuff, you know what? That wasn't the deal. And so I'm not real comfortable with you pushing on me. I, I have seen that, and so what I think it came from was this idea that I am a believer in Jesus. But I didn't decide to be a follower. Because if I was a follower, I'd be pushing on you to say, how do we make this true? Okay, let's go to the next one. I think we have a leadership problem. And this is not knocking the people who have given their lives to try to create um, the effect that God wants. But it does say that leaders are the ones who are supposed to solve those first three problems. They're supposed to give people the paradigm or the mindset. They're supposed to give them the tools. They're supposed to give them the coaching. They're supposed to give them the encouragement. Because the Joe and Sally Smith of the world, the ordinary people, they don't do it in a vacuum. It's not like you just say, okay, this is your assignment, read these passages, now you know, now go do. It doesn't work that way. Leadership has to accept the responsibility to provide the overall atmosphere, the understanding, provide the track to run on, a clear view of a better future and the encouragement that we're on the journey no matter what the setbacks are that we can actually get there. So this, this issue of providing mindset, tools, coaching and encouragement, I don't doubt that many of you have been seeking to do that. And honor to where honor is due for those who have said, I have to make sure that they have what they need so they can accomplish God's goal, yay and amen. But it doesn't relieve us of the responsibility that if it hasn't happened yet, it's still on us. Us who are leaders are going to have a higher requirement when we stand before the Lord because our job is to get it done through them, not to do it ourselves. So here's a concept that I want you to take away. We're in a war that can only be won by the soldiers changing sides. Normally you think about war, you think about taking them out or making them prisoners, right? No, that's not what we're in. We can only win this war by getting them to change sides. And when they do, then we have to provide the boot camps so they know what to do. 
And I've been in a lot of Sunday schools over a lot of time in a lot of churches, and they didn't feel like boot camps for me to bring the kingdom of God into my circle of influence. I'm not saying there's no value there. It's not a question of good or bad. It's a question of highest and best. It's a question of sufficiency relative to the strategy and the ultimate outcome. We have to, we who are leaders, have to provide the training, the tools, the encouragement, all the things that the ordinary person needs in order to fulfill their destiny, or we cannot win. So people ask me all the time, you tell us all these stories about all of this great stuff happening far away, can it happen here? And I tell people, if we do what they do, we'll have what they have. What does that mean? That means that they're praying. That means that they're engaging. That means that they're providing the tools. That means that they're paying the price. And I can tell you many, many, many stories about people who've given their lives. I could tell you stories about people whose hands were cut off, legs were cut off, whose homes were burned, churches burned, families robbed from them. They've been willing to pay the price. And they've been in it for the long haul. I said yesterday, anything that's happened that I tell you about, we stand on the shoulders of generations of people who prayed and cried and bled and died for these days. If it was easy, it'd be long done. It is not easy and it will not be easy here, but you gotta start somewhere. And wherever you're at today, start there and commit that this is where we're gonna go. And, and one last word here, and I'm not gonna share this pointing at you, it was pointed at me. And I share it as part of my testimony. It's Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. That's what I call a pants down spanking, where the Lord caused me to look in the mirror. And I read that, and he says, Woe to you, rebellious people, because you're executing a plan, but it's not my plan. And that's how I grew up, and that's what marks most of the early years in my ministry doing all kinds of good stuff, working hard at it, sincere and sacrificial, and never embracing the central fact that the entire strategy to complete the Great Commission is predicated on one thing. As you're going, make disciples and teach them to obey everything. And as they begin to obey everything, they're going to repeat the process. And as that process is repeated, not only does the flywheel turn and the numbers get bigger, but it begins to open up what God designed into the equation that everything is connected throughout his world. And the leaven of the gospel, Luke 13, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is like leaven, which a woman put into three pecks of, of flour and it changed everything. Where we cross-connect is where the leaven can change into another circle with people that you don't know because everybody knows somebody you don't. And as that process goes on, what we're doing, we're expressing the plan that God put in place that is not out of reach. It is right there for us. But so far in the main, we have chosen not to do it and the results reflect it. So again, I'm not pointing that at you. I'm telling you what I found in the mirror for me. And it was one of the many uh, crossroads experiences that the Lord used to change my life. And uh, as I often share with folks that I'm talking to, enjoy the chicken and spit out the bones. Whatever resonates for you and what we've said in these times together, 
let it take root and produce a harvest and let the Spirit of God blow the chaff away. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. All right, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite all five of the guys up on stage, Harry, if you'd come up as well again. We're all going to spend a little bit of time reacting to, uh, to some of what Harry has shared and uh, may possibly have time for, for some questions at, uh, at the end of this session as well. So, uh, Harry, definitely appreciate uh, this conversation. I think a, an open and honest conversation, that's, that's why we're here. I think that's why you're here as well, to have this kind of an open and honest conversation. And so, uh, again, I think, uh, Harry, what you've done is a really good job of not pointing fingers at any one of us, but speaking very openly and honestly to us about uh, the state of the, the North American church as a whole. And, and I, think, I think we need to hear those words, all of us. I think that's why you came here, because you wanted to hear these words, or you already agree to some degree that, uh, that we have a problem in the North American church as it relates to disciple-making, and there are many barriers that exist that, that, that are causing that problem. So uh, with that in mind, I want to hand it over to you guys and, and, and start getting some reactions to, to what Harry said. Anybody want to take a stab first? I want Dan to. I was going to say, I don't want to go first because I'll, I'll, I won't stop talking. <laughs> Dan and I were texting. Oh, we're for sure. Um, what you described, again, is I, I felt like you were, um, you were rooting around in my garden. Uh, and, and, I, and I mean that in such a, a, a blessed way. I, I was, as you were talking, again, just my, uh, my heart was chugging along. And then he talked about obedience. And um, because... And again, it's one of the things we do at the Bonhoeffer Project, and it's a, uh, one of the things that we, we've, we've preached for a long time, is that it's a gospel problem. Mm-hmm. What we're facing in the North American church is further upstream than we'd like to admit. Mm. It's a gospel problem. We are preaching a gospel to the church, or, or to the lost, I should say. And the church is part, you know, and in, in they're listening to us preach. We're preaching forgiveness only, or, or we, we say we're preaching discipleship, but it's discipleship is relegated to a ministry within a church or I disciple because I preach. Hmm. Um, and so what we've done is we've created generations of people who are then regurgitating that forgiveness only gospel. And we're, we're spending weeks, months and years, we're spending lifetimes preaching to the church that was told you're forgiven. Now, we're, we're begging them to pick up the option on their contract, <laughs> be obedient. And so we've, we've lost a generation because they were saved, to be honest, under, under incomplete at best or false pretenses. And that is what has, has crippled the American church mm. is the lack 
of, of, of a forthright call to obedience. And, and when you see that, right, that's why there's no power in the church anymore. There's no obedience. People aren't doing the things that Jesus said to do. And so I, I resonate with it so much and would want to talk for too long, but I 100% agree, 100%. I think that's really good, Dan. I think um, really connects with what, what Harry was saying. And I, the, so the Australian Mark Sayer, some of you may be familiar with who he is, says that what we've created in the American church is consumers of the faith, not contenders for the faith. Mm. You know, and if that's the reality of our churches is that we have a bunch of people who come to consume Sunday after Sunday, but then they don't go into the world to contend on behalf of the gospel, then we shouldn't be surprised with the results that we're seeing in the North American church. I think that's, that's a big barrier. And I love the way the Bonhoeffer Project puts that to say our problem is way upstream. Way upstream. It's not where we're currently sitting. Right. How about, uh, how about you, Jim or, or Bobby? Yeah, um, I think that's true. I think there are pastors that do teach obedience, but I think unless you're willing to, to be in relationship with people, um, they don't know what that actually looks like, and they don't know. Um, the methodology for disciple-making wasn't just to talk about something. It was to model something. It was to teach people in relationship. Jesus' methodology for disciple-making was in relationship, and um, and so, um, if 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 the model we have in church is somebody stands up and, and offers that message of salvation, and then somebody stands up and then explains even what obedience is, but isn't living a life that somebody can see and touch and look at the way Jesus did, you're still that that methodology is still going to lead to lead to just nice ideas, um, and and you know, intellectual assent. And so um, I think it was you, was it you yesterday that talked? No, never mind, different conversation. But, um, you know, most people, uh, if you're going to write a book, you write a book to the, between the eighth and ninth grade level. And um, if you're going to live a life, same thing. You want to live a life uh, that, that, that's something that the regular, everyday, ordinary person can understand and see and look at and reproduce. And most people, when they get up on the stage, they don't understand that what they're doing is unreproducible by most people. And therefore, most people, the methodology we have is that they'll sit there because the methodology we're showing them isn't reproducible by them. And so uh, they don't share because I can't share like that guy. They don't, they don't do much other than come and watch or invite because that's my job. So even if you preach the truth, if you don't live it in such a way that it can be lived out, you still miss the mark. Yeah, Jim, you use the, use the example of being a wrestler and a wrestling coach. I, I played basketball in high school, um, a little bit in college, and then coached basketball as well. And the same thing, you know, I, it hit me one day. If I, as a basketball coach, were to get up in front of my, my team and I were to preach to them about what basketball, a good game of basketball looks like, and then say, all right, fellas, we're going to see at the game, and we left it at that. I mean, that is the model for many of our churches, is we get up as you know, trained professional communicators, we preach, we share, and then we say, all right, guys, we'll see you next week, and I hope you do what we just talked about. You know, With my basketball guys, I get on the court and I sweat with them. I, I show them what it looks like to box out, to rebound well, 
I show them what a good shot looks like, a follow through. If I wasn't doing those kind of things, I shouldn't expect for them to turn around and become better basketball players. But we don't, in our ministries, often take that next step to, to be that relational example that you're talking about. And I think that is, that is maybe to the leadership problem that we, we have. So I don't know, Harry, maybe you could comment on that a little bit. Um, what you see, flesh that out a little bit further, what you see in, in leadership and why that is such a barrier within the North American church. I think your basketball analogy is a good one. It's the difference between, you know, advocating that people doing something versus modeling. And the, the stuff that people hear that feels either out of reach or they don't understand, they feel like, um, I'm not ready yet, I'm not sure what to do, I'm afraid, whatever. Those have to be solved, and they're solved, to Jim's point, in relationship, where, where people can be encouraged on the journey. And it, it's the baby step syndrome. You have to start somewhere and then you're going to grow and most of the growth has to be on the job and that's part of the key is getting ready isn't just you have to have more and more and more increments of understanding no you have to have application and everything that you're going to learn is sort of like a staircase learn practice learn practice learn practice if it's just a data dump of here's what you should do typically overwhelming typically a low action typically low success so it's a walk with them kind of a thing all right, Paul, Bobby, I know you got some thoughts. Paul, um, what I'm wondering about is we're talking about a, a behind Harry's barriers is a, is a totally different operating system of church. So in North America and even in the evangelical church, the idea that you have a clergy person who is the key person between you and God uh, it may not be a priest that you go to, but you got to find the right pastor and the right programs and the right church because you've got to have that to be able to be the kind of person God wants you to be. When we're talking about these movements, it's a totally different paradigm. It's the everyday person seeing that they have a job to proclaim and live out the kingdom, to make disciples, that they have a different paradigm about power because it's going to take a lot of prayer and fasting to, to see things changed. And then they have an entirely different gospel. And the gospel is a, the King Jesus gospel, uh, which is not just salvation, but it's salvation and discipleship uh, when you come to, to follow Jesus. That's a totally different paradigm. And, and part of the problem um, that I get into, and Paul and I are going to get into this in the second session, is it's really easy to straddle the fence. Well, let, let me jump in here, because Harry, yeah. you, I think you said it this morning, right? Mm -hmm. But the church mm -hmm. has become this... We're going to make introductions, mm -hmm. right? We're going to, hey, you invite someone to this place, and to here's my you, pastor. To hear you. Right, your job, right? But again, we're calling people to a place instead of sending the church out to be the church and then bringing them in saying, hey, look at this guy. This is my friend Paul. He accepted Jesus yesterday. He's going to make this his home church. He, he wants to know what's the path to discipleship, right? That's what we need to train people to do, not bring them to the church to show them to the professionals and say, all right, take it from here. Yeah. And I'll offer a thought. We have to always be careful of the problem of the pendulum. Something is not everything it should be. So it goes over to this extreme and it could be equally out of balance. So, you know, God raises up teachers. God gives uh, places for elders and whatever. That stuff should not be taken out of the conversation. But I picked up a quote from a guy named Jared Wilson. He said, the system in place is perfectly designed for the results you're getting. 
So we as leaders, if we don't like the results, something in the system. So it's not about, okay, just wipe the table, declare, you know, defeat and start over. That's not, that's not the, the starting place. But the starting place is, what is the ultimate outcome that we believe God has called us to and is whatever we have put in place getting us there? If not, why not? And what is keeping us from getting on with the things that we know will take it higher and better? Yeah, that's good. We talked a little bit about the, the paradigm problem. We've talked a little bit about the leadership problem as well. Um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk in particular about the prayer problem since we've spent so much time there. And, and one of the things we're saying is pivotal to seeing disciple-making movements break out is this radical dependence upon the movement of the Holy Spirit, the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to summarize real quickly, if I can, I think what, what you said there, that almost that we in North America, we put more, and those of us in leadership in the church period, we put more... Um, we put more faith in strategy or more emphasis upon strategy than we have upon the leading, guiding, and working of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And, and certainly, I think all of us value strategy. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with valuing strategy. And what, I, what blew my mind is to sit with Shadanke and listen to him talk about strategy, mm -hmm. very developed strategy. Um, but it's a strategy that seems to be much more inspired by the Holy Spirit than human wisdom. So um, could we talk about that for a little bit? I don't know if any of you guys have any comments or Harry, you want to jump in and emphasize that? Go ahead, Jim. I, I would reverse the order. Um, I wouldn't start with prayer. Uh, if you go to John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you can ask whatever you want. I think there's a whole lot of people praying about what they want, their strategy and their plans. We have to go to, if we're, we're told to go and teach people to obey all that he commanded, we have the Holy Spirit primary, primarily speaks through his word. And the spirit of God does not contradict the word of God. And there are a whole bunch of people that don't know the word of God. Therefore, they're praying for whatever they think they want to pray for. And until we go, all right, I'm going to be obedient to Jesus. I'm going to be abiding his word so that he recalibrates what I even want, what I value, what I care about, then I'm going to start praying. I think if you reverse the order, you waste your time praying about a bunch of stuff. The Bible says in First, First uh, uh, John five fourteen, if you pray anything according to His will, it is done for you. Uh, the Lord's prayer: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And so there's a whole bunch of prosperity stuff out there going, hey, name it, claim it, whatever. And, and no is an answer. And God doesn't care about a lot of the stuff that we care about. And so it's first going to the word and then going, all right, is this something that I should even ask him for? Is this something that, that he even cares about? And you're like, well, I know he cares about the numbers of hairs on your head. And he cares, about, yeah. But he, he, it's like a little kid that wants something that his parents know aren't good for him? The answer is no, because that's not good for you. And so I would actually reverse the order and go, our people don't know the word, first of all. Therefore, what they pray for is pretty much useless. You know, God wants to give Americans more of what they already have, which isn't doing them any good. And sometimes God wants to break us down all the way to our knees because there's all this stuff we're chasing around, all these things Americans are chasing around pursuing, they're storing up treasure on earth. They're not storing up treasure in heaven. They're thinking about now, and God's become a tool to be used by God uh, rather than 
than saying, God, your will be done. And so getting into the word then defines what we pray for. Then we start praying according to his will, and then things start happening. Yeah, I think, Dan, that, that connects a little bit with, um, I, I think, back to kind of our, our paradigm problem to some degree in what you all say often in the Bonhoeffer Project, and maybe you can say it better than I can, but it's, it's about the gospel we preach, determining the disciple that, that we then see. If you right, yeah, it, it's all about, you have the root and the fruit, right? Whatever you plant, that's what's going to show up. So if you're planting good seeds, you're going to get good fruit from the good tree, the good soil, right? It's, all, it's good all around. But just as, as Jim's talking about, right, what, what are you feeding? What are you putting into the soil? You know, if it's good food because it's righteous, it's before the word of God. I, I mean, I'm in 100% agreement because, again, there's that balance. You even talked about it, right? You can, if you have the, the word without, you know, the wisdom, you're going to be a Pharisee. So we've got to make sure we balance that with the, the action and the do. And when you have that, then you've got the good recipe. But, but here's where I'm, what I'm seeing is, and you've touched on it, you've touched on it, I think we all have. We all here as leaders need to overcome the pride barrier and assess, right? Because if we think we're good, we're, we're deceiving ourselves, right? And that's the worst kind of deception is self-deception, right? Deception means you think you're right when you're not, right? Deception means you're believing a lie. We have to be honest enough with ourselves to have a process of evaluation. Do my, are my people, like nobody wants to admit my kid or my, my church is illiterate in the word. No one wants to say that. No, no, they're good. They're well-taught people, well-fed sheep, right? We always say that, right? <laughs> but, but have you asked someone? Have you, have you ever asked someone, hey, what's your definition of the gospel? Do a survey of your church. Be honest with your people. Ask someone who's newly saved. Ask someone who's been in your church for 20 years. Hey, what do you hear me preach? See what they say, right? You want a good litmus test? Ask everyday people what they hear you teach, right? I, people do this all, pastor, great sermon. Which part do you like? Uh, it, you know, the middle, there was a section. Wow. <laughs> Just ask the question. You'll find out. It's humbling. But we've got to overcome that pride to be able to say, okay, I'm not producing what I think I am or, or what I want to see. And there's a big lesson for all of us in James where it says, you look in the mirror, you see clearly, you turn away, you forget. So there's an evaluation. There's an honest recognition. <clears throat> this isn't what it needs to be. But the turn away problem is what we all face. Part of that is regular evaluation. Part of that is group evaluation. Because I can forget, but my wife doesn't. <laughs> right. It's a great thing. Hey, uh, Harry, I want to ask about a uh, hundred thousand intercessors. Okay. Uh, how did you? So I have many questions about this. My my. Uh, you, you know where I live. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> but just as we think of uh, what we're doing in our churches, I I I don't know. I can't speak for uh, these men who are here with me, but I'm not feeling good about the intercessors. In our church, like when you say these are people who've given their lives mm -hmm. to intercessory mm -hmm. prayer, uh, I would love to have uh, uh, you know a team uh, of people like that. How how are they raised up? What do they do? Tell us more about that. Yeah, and I, I don't use the number a hundred thousand to impress anybody that because it's a big number. It, it, the purpose is to say intentionality. 
And the intentionality is we, we put money in it. Uh, we have prayer camps, we have mobilization events and training events and whatever, because it's enough of a value, we actually put money into it. We actually uh, highlighted, I told you, the values, what you invest in, what you measure, what you celebrate. We actually lift it up as a game-changing element in accomplishing God's will so that people kind of catch that energy from it. And there's constant recruiting for it. And, and I, I just don't think that the average person is going to be a dedicated intercessor, even though all of us should pray. There's something that God does that puts a burden in their heart, and I would say a gifting there, to be able to have the kind of perseverance that I witness. And I'm always amazed by it. So I don't think it's normative. But I do think the intentionality to find them and to support them, to celebrate it and put it back in everybody's mind as this is the centerpiece, whether it's first or second is not the issue. It's whether it's ever present. And it's a, um, it's a critical element in the overall um, outcome. One of the biggest things that you said yesterday that uh, is going to stay with me is that strongholds are not overcome by strategy. Mm -mm. So uh, if we're trying to reach people and uh, build bridges and overcome things, uh, the importance of uh, praying through these strongholds. Um, just one last question on that, mm -hmm. and that is uh, how in your movement do you find the intercessors? Okay, um, first I just have to say it's not my movement, just to make sure we keep yeah, the focus yeah, where you. it needs to be. Yeah, good. And God's and, movement through new generations. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so you, you have to you know, go fishing in the ponds where you expect to catch the fish. And if you're not catching, you need to change the bait or change the pond kind of thing. So it's always looking for them with the attitude of, is God going to raise up somebody that resonates with the vision of being an intercessor and can we help mobilize them and train them in that to where it's evident that this is what their calling is and they develop a lifestyle of it like like all things you know muscle grows yeah. it's just not you just come off the shelf as instant intercessor but you do see a resonance there that says god has burdened me for these things and i want to know more about it that's a pull not a push so when you're finding the pull you want to give them a track to run on that's good yeah, I wonder if we could, um, we, we've touched on several of the problems now. The one that we've kind of glanced on a couple of times is, uh, is, is the fact that we have an obedience problem in, in North America. And I, I don't think we're talking about in the North American church. We're talking about in North American culture at large. Um, you know, I've got a good friend of mine who's a, who's a teacher, and some of the stories that he tells me about the way, uh, the lack of respect that some of the children have for him as the authority figure in that class uh, it just talks. It just talks to the fact that we, as a culture, are more and more uh, going to a place where we're declaring our independence everywhere we go. I, I don't think it's just a, a declaration of independence issue. Um, I think, and, and I may be opening a can of worms with this one to, to some degree, but but it's also an issue of of what postmodernity values. You know, if if it's true as as the, the postmoderns would claim that that I can make my own truth. Right? So I define my own truth in a sense um, that, that what matters most is that I pursue my own happiness. You know, so if we, if we in our culture are saying happiness matters more than faithfulness all across the board, I mean, we see that in marriages. I, I'm, I'm a trained counselor as well, and so I'll sit with people every now and then. And, 
And, and as people are looking sometimes to walk away from a marriage they've been engaged in for the last 15 years, and they say something along these lines of, well, doesn't God just want me to be happy? And that's really what we believe. And then I turn around and say, no, God wants you to be faithful and then trust that, that he's going to bring what's good into that, that faithfulness brings the good things of God along. Uh, we have a problem all across the board. So if we can define our own meaning, if we can create our own truth in a sense, and if nothing matters more than happiness, if that is the, the mode of our culture or the dominant cultural narrative, then we've got a lot to battle against in the church when we're asking people to be obedient and faithful to the things that God puts before them. Yeah, and I struggled uh, whether I should say we have an obedience problem or I should say we have a passion problem. Because most of the gospel that's presented isn't about a love relationship. It, it's about the, the issues that are real. You're a sinner, he's a savior. But it's very rarely rooted in the, the kind of um, love relationship that's going to define where we go from here from the rest of our days. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. I, I don't think he was wagging a finger. I think he was just looking in somebody's eyes and saying, there's cause and effect here. If you love me, all these other things are going to happen. And so nurturing that passion is, is really fundamental. And quick word on Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, a cornerstone for the, the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You should teach it to your son and your grandson. Do it every day in every way. It's on your forehead. It's on the back of your hand. It's on the, the gatepost, the door, when you lie down, when you stand up. What's the message? You have to nurture that passion. It's not something that you can just make it an intellectual exercise. And by nurturing that passion, when you see it glow in the soul, then you know it can carry on because they will course correct. If they love the word and they're in the word, they will go back to the word. And the Holy Spirit will say, you're off course on that one, go like that. And they'll say, yes, because I love you. That, that is a, a passion problem that's just part of the obedience problem. The lack of obedience is the symptom, the root is the passion. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think you're correct. I haven't spent much time thinking about it in, in, that, uh, in that respect. I, I do think you're right. We, we have a, a passion issue. We're not necessarily passionate about being faithful. We're not passionate about the things of God. And if we were passionate about being faithful, again, as a people, um, passionate about the things of God, it would change the things that we said were most important that we, that we truly valued. And, and two, two quick scriptures to illustrate that point. You know, the chase the one sheep and leave the 99. What an incredible expression of a heart for the lost. And then when you have the, pro the parable of the prodigal, you've got the dad on the front porch looking every day. When is he going to recrust the horizon and come back? And the discussion when he arrives, the kid starts to say, I blew it, dad, and I hurt you. He says, no, be quiet, you're home. We're going to have a party. That kind of heart is something you nurture. That's not something that just automatically comes. And so my advocacy is on the obedience problem or the passion problem, whichever way you prefer, is you work hard to nurture that passion because that's what will keep things going when you're not around. Yeah, that's good. good job. Just to make his point, Matthew 22, 37, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Mm -hmm. Right, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened to it, love your neighbors yourself. And then he says something that we kind of miss. All the laws and commands hang on those two. In other words, 
every bit of the law is about loving God and loving others. Every command was about protecting relationship, promoting relationship with God and others. And so if you miss that, if you, you know, that was the part that, that, you know, you strain out the gnat, swallow the camel, Jesus said. You know, you, you forget, you know, that what I want to do is I want to give mercy, love. And, and so, um, you know, that, that's essential to the discipleship process. Why am I obeying? Well, it's because God loves me and knows me and he saved me and in, he was right about everything he ever said and he loves that person. You don't use that person. He loves that person. That's the Lord's son or daughter. You know, it changes the way you see people, yourself, all of it. Why, why do you not do what you do? Because God loves me and he, he doesn't want to hurt. He doesn't want me to be hurt by my own actions. Everything flows through the eyes of God's love for us and for others. So uh, those two things are absolutely the same thing. Yeah, is it fair to say in that, that what both of you would be saying is, is that we're people with, with a divided heart in a sense. Um, we want a bit of God, we want a bit of the world, but we don't want to be fully committed to God, but, but that's what he's calling us to with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not a partway commitment to loving God, loving others, um, but, a, but a full commitment to it. And we struggle being fully committed people, especially within our context, but I'm sure that's a human problem, not just a North American problem. Hi, it's Jason Henderson here as a sponsor from Renew.org. I wanted to invite you to not only attend Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum, but come one day early for the Renew.org Network National Gathering. It's October 4th from 1230 to 830 p.m., so the afternoon and evening you can travel early that day. You'll get to hear from Paul Hugabart, Jim Putman, Shadonke Johnson, and other well-known disciple makers. They'll speak on our theme, Real Life Theology Conversations. That's the theology we need for real life and the relationships and conversations, the hard conversations that it takes in today's cultural reality to make disciples. There's special pricing available. You're going to want the best price to come to both Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum as well as Renew.org's National Gathering. Go to Renew.org forward slash events for that combo ticket. That's the best price to both events, the combo ticket. Again, that's R-E-N-E-W dot O-R-G forward slash events, renew.org forward slash events. We'll see you there. Okay, guys, are you good with taking, we got about 15 minutes left, some questions maybe from some, some folks in the audience, um, and I can, I can walk around and then maybe represent that question as we go. All right, if you've got a question, we'd love go for you to raise your hand, especially, you know, related to maybe some of the barriers that we're facing in North America, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll come to you and, uh, and we'll repeat that out loud. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And Harry, maybe if you take that and again, contextualize it for the North American setting, again, thinking about um, starting small and ending big. So the question is, what are some pragmatic ways uh, that you might help us teach uh, others within the North American setting to to begin praying, uh, maybe in that intercessory way. Is that correct? Okay. So, what is the vision for how we would start to teach the kind of prayer that accompanies 
a movement, all, all, you know, I think in a comprehensive way. Yeah, prayer is one of those deep wells. You can spend a lot of time studying it and its dimensions and so forth, but I would advocate you just start and then grow into it. Um, if you do it yourself or you can get a friend and ask them to bring a friend, the, the idea is to create momentum. And over time, you should be adding in the dimensions by looking in the Word and whatever. But it's one of those muscle kinds of things. It's like when you know, you, you're out of shape and you want to get in shape. You just have to start doing it. And then you tend to find people that want to do it too, and they need to draw energy from you. You draw energy from them. So big fan of uh, you know, studying the depths of prayer to learn about the dimensions. But I would advocate that you start by doing. I'm going to just, I'm going to just throw in too. I mean, <laughs> pray what Jesus said to pray, right? The Lord's prayer is, uh, it's funny. I grew up in a Lutheran church. So we grew up reciting the Lord's prayer as though it was a mantra, um, when it was a model, right? It's a model to pray. And so, Hey, pray to the Lord, right? Your will be done, right? It's all about kingdom. So you can follow, I, but I totally mm -hmm. agree, right? Uh, one of the things that I say, I say this to my people all the time, pray until you pray. <laughs> and what that mindset gets to people is like, I can, and we're all like this, right? We can all read the Bible and pray and not do a single one of those things, right? We can pray and not actually pray. We can read the Bible and not actually read the Bible. Words are passing through our brain and our eyes, but nothing's being retained because we're not focused. So sometimes, you know, it, it, within prayer for me, sometimes I, it, it takes me 15, 20 minutes just to settle my mind enough in prayer to actually pray and do something in the kingdom. So it does take practice, it does take discipline, it takes consistency, um, but if somebody is like, hey man, I wanna start praying, well, what do you do? You disciple them in prayer, you show them what you do, you teach them, you say, hey, uh, do you have this battle like I do? Yeah, I've got that battle. Well, okay, this is how you overcome it. So it's, it's, it's a modeling as much as it is, and Jesus gave us a great model. I'll, I'll add on, um, there's a lot of prayer resources out there that are available. I mentioned yesterday, we have a, a prayer website, I think it's movementprayer.org, um, but there's, there's lots of other ones. So the resources are abundant. And the reason I said start first is it's easy to get trapped into just trying to absorb all the resources and it never gets into the action. So I'm not anti at all using those resources, they're a gift from God. But I would say that if we don't make it practical and start doing it, it'll tend to be something like a New Year's resolution it's been a year and I still didn't do it kind of thing. Yeah, I think um, I'll add just a little bit to that if I could. Um, I think in the North American context, we need to put a lot more emphasis on just talking about things and actually more emphasis than on, on teaching, training, and equipping people in some of these things that are so foreign to us to some degree. Um, and so one of the things that we've started doing at, at, at the church where I minister is, is really putting a whole lot of emphasis on those things, teaching, training, and equipping. And so uh, we still, again, since this is a conversation about how we might see a hybrid movement of the attractional church and then bringing in DMM principles, is, is that we move to a place where we still do lean into things like events and programs but it's not just to have a program, it's not just to have an event, it's because we want that program or that event to be a catalyst to something new, a new behavior. So we'll have a night of prayer and worship, and in that time of prayer and worship, you know, I may for 20 minutes model through uh, a time of guided prayer, the type of prayer that we're trying to lead our folks into praying. 
Um, or we'll have, you know, we have, uh, and I know Bobby does as well, we have a, a group that meets every Monday morning praying for renewal, revival, and awakening. And we invite, we invite anyone to come join us for that. So we've got leaders who've seen that modeled, um, you know, whether that's engaging with Shadanke and others. So we see what others are doing and we see the effect that that's having. And we say, okay, we can do something like that. Now, what I can't do, if you've ever seen Shadanke, he'll stand up here and he'll sing a couple of songs while he's praying. I don't do that. You know, we may play a song and then out of that song come these ideas of prayer in response to God. Um, and so we use that to set the tone as we're moving into prayer. So we're taking baby steps to learn how to do that. Again, we start small to end big. The way we say that at, at our church is we say roots come before shoots, you know, so mm. we think about the, the language of a plant. So let's plant these roots. So let's not just go for what we see people doing, but let's actually plant the roots that will lead to faithfulness and fruit. Uh, and as it relates to prayer, that's true as well. Okay, I saw another couple hands come over here first. Yes, so this is a really good question. Um, and I'm gonna let you guys answer it. Unfortunately, I think I kind of know the answer on this one for the most part. So what she says is she's really thrilled to hear about disciple making movements. It seems to her that this is more of an overseas thing and that we actually don't see any of that necessarily here on the North American content. Is, is that the case in the I, sense of disciple in making movements? Uh, Jim Putman and I've had a conversation about this and I, I think it's really important to clarify. <clears throat> When we, when we describe disciple-making movements, we're using a very specific definition of a revival-based movement that we're seeing around the world. If we're communicating when we say that, that there's not disciple-making movements in churches here, uh, we're not communicating accurately. Because there are churches, <clears throat> and I'm sitting up on stage here, with a group of men who are leading them, there are churches where disciple-making is really effectively being done. So if you were to go to Post Falls, Idaho, and see what's happening in Jim's church, you would see 6,000 people gathered uh, plus uh, on weekends, and you'd see upwards of 80% of those in discipling groups during the week. And that's phenomenal. And then planting churches through the Relational Discipleship Network that are replicating that. I could show you at the church I lead, 80% of people are in discipling relationships. But the rapid revival-like reaching of people through these movements is the thing that is not as strong here. And Jim, do you wanna comment further on that? Well, there's been Christians in Sierra Leone for a long time, right? Um, I think there's times where you plant seeds, there's time where you water, there's, there's all kinds of things going on at all different kinds of times that, where there's explosions that are happening. Uh, I think uh, America right now has been inoculated against Christ for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, uh, this is a very, very tough culture in that um, they're moving, I call it rock skipping. It, you know, we have a lot of lakes. You throw a rock, real flat rock, and it bounces off the top of the water. They're moving so fast that there's nothing deep in their life. It's all surface. And, and so we're, it, just like other places at other times where people were battling it out and grinding it out for seasons, and all of a sudden explosion happens, maybe not even in the life of a missionary that died there, that, that, that there are different seasons in different places. 
there are different difficulties that we face here that they don't face there in the same way. It doesn't mean they don't have their own problems. You know, I get to work with missionaries around the world, and I, I prayed for, you know, told missionaries in China, I'm praying for you, and they're like, no, we're praying for you. Right? We're praying for you. The amount of distraction and the culture you people live in it takes away from a, a deep walk with Jesus. So we are called to be where we are, right? Our mission field is we were born here. I'm not saying that there aren't people that are called to other places. Our job is to grind it out, battle it out, day in, day out. I just wish that people would battle it out with the right tools. If you're trying to make disciples with method methodologies that don't actually make disciples, you can't blame it on the culture. Don't blame it on the culture. You're using the wrong methods for making disciples. And, and, I, do, and I have seen this. When you actually use Jesus' methods, you stick to the word. You quit trying to give the culture what they think they want. You call people and live out something that can be modeled. You live that out. People come to know Christ. Now, is it... Um, uh, is it at the same pace of what's happening over there, over here, whatever? There are revival movements that are happening. Again, I'm glad for that. I praise God for that. And I'll pray for that and help support that as best I can. But this is the mission field I'm in right here, and it's a battle. And, uh, and I'm going to live and die in that, in that battle. And again, you're using the wrong tools, you're not going to have a lot of success. You use the American box we've been handed. The American box doesn't work, and I hate it when we try to transport it around the world. It doesn't work here. Why would we share it anywhere else? <laughs> Let's start doing what Jesus said and let him deal with the results. Let's celebrate the right things. And, uh, and so I think that's probably a good idea. If, if you've ever seen bamboo grow, anybody ever see bamboo? Yeah, amen. Thank you. Is anybody ever... Go, <laughs> give them a runway for that. If you've ever seen bamboo grow, if you ever uh, plant bamboo, um, years and years of no growth. And then when it grows, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. That is, I think we're in, uh, Bill, Bill Hall called it a paradigm. We're in, we're in the beginnings of a new paradigm in the American church. But paradigms don't change overnight. They, they take time and it's, it is a slow roll and a slow process. So I believe it is a, 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 an awakening to the disciple movement. I heard a, a, there was a missionary friend of mine in India. He said, I've seen Christians overcome persecution very well and all the time. I've seen very few Christians overcome plenty. So when people have prosperous nations it's very hard to overcome that because we we found our treasure <laughs> which is why christians ought to quit worrying about make america great again and we ought to start saying hey jesus do what you need to do to break us down to our knees so we actually reach up amen Hey, I just wanted to jump on here and say thank you so much for listening and to encourage you to go ahead and stick around and listen to the next episode that we recorded from the Exponential Conference from this year. I've got links in the show notes for both the Renew Gathering and the Discipleship.org forum so that you can get a head start on purchasing your tickets. And I look forward to seeing you at both events. All right, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed the episode and I hope you have a great day.